0: You are listening to the Wickenburg Pulpit, the preaching ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Wickenburg, Arizona, where we seek to be faithful to Scripture and relevant to life. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. I'm going to finish Nehemiah today. And then we will, where we're going from here is we are going to look at the messianic prophecies of Christ through the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah has a lot of the prophecies concerning the birth of Christ, so we'll be in that in the coming weeks through December as we focus on Advent and the coming of Christ. Uh, Nehemiah 13. Now, man, I love these Christmas decorations in here, and I love Christmas, even though I'm not an early Christmas decorator, uh, you know, Christmas has got to come after Thanksgiving, but I love Christmas, but... At the risk of sounding like Scrooge or the Grinch, I must confess that I'm not a huge fan of Hallmark Christmas movies. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure a lot of people do. And most people like the happily ever after endings. The Hallmark Christmas movies are all the same. The big shot executive moves to the small town to close the plant or buy the family farm or put in a new massive development where the town Christmas lodge was. The big executive falls in love with a small town hero who wants to save Christmas. Tension happens, but then of course the big shot executive turns down his promotion, somehow finds a way to save the family farm or save the lodge or whatever it is that they are trying to do. He realizes true love was what he or she was missing, not a fancy career. They live happily ever after, they kiss underneath a mistletoe, and it snows on Christmas Day. That's every Hallmark Christmas movie, by the way, so you can watch something else this Christmas. Predictable and lame. But nevertheless, everyone likes a happy ending, do we not? And I wish Nehemiah had a happy ending. I wish it ended in chapter 12. If I was able to remove a chapter in the Bible, I would remove Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah has been a great book. They get together. God's hand of providence is upon them. God, God sparks the passion in Nehemiah. He leads the people to rebuild the wall in record timing in 52 days. God's hand was upon them. They overcame adversity. And then in Nehemiah 8, the, the wall is built. They come together. They're sitting under the word of God. They're rejoicing at the word of God that they're hearing. They're being transformed by the word. And in the end of Nehemiah 8, their, their worship practices, they're, they're, they're worshiping according to the word. In Nehemiah chapter 9, they're confessing their sins before God. They're remembering God's grace and mercy through Israel's history that it was a God who had compassion on them over and over and over again. And Nehemiah 10, they, they make a covenant together. They, they, they sign a covenant saying, hey, we're going to commit to live in obedience to the Lord. And they list out very real, practical ways that they are going to be obedient to the Lord. In Nehemiah 11 and 12, we see a hundred hundred years of faithfulness of priests and Levites teaching and preaching the word of God. And Nehemiah 12 ends with a a, a phenomenal worship service where they dedicate the temple. They are rejoicing with great joy, and and choirs are up on the walls. They're singing, instruments are being played, and they're giving praise and thanksgiving to God for the work that he has done among them. I wish it ended there but it doesn't. Nehemiah 13 is somewhat of a depressing note. It's almost like ending a wonderful piece of music on a minor chord. It is depressing, to say the least. Let me read it, and you will see why. It begins this way. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hard Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now prior to this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, Had prepared a large room for him where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. And I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing him for a room in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order that they cleansed the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their post. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain of wine and oil into the storehouse. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedadiah of the Levites. In addition to them was Hanan the son of Zakor, the son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and it was their task to distri- distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot, me out, blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. In those days I also saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath, "...and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads that they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold the food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, and even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, "'What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day?' Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? You are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. It came about that just as it grew dark, the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise, spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness." In those days I also saw the Jews married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children half spoke the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah but the language of his own people. So I contended with them, and cursed them, and struck some of them, and pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all of this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joadiah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, so I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. As you can see, this it's a little bit depressing. The people of God, had committed in chapter 10 to live in obedience and faithfulness to God and his word. In fact, we can look at Nehemiah chapter 10 and the things that they had committed to, and we find here in Nehemiah, these are the very things that they are doing. They are breaking the Sabbath. They have married foreign women. They are not giving to the Levites. They have neglected the house of god and nehemiah had if you remember nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king Uh, he was the cupbearer to king artaxerxes that was his job prior to coming to judah to rebuild the wall and so he had gone back he had gone back to his old job because that's what he gave the king an allotted time the work was done so he had to go back to his his employer he doesn't really know what's going on, but all the while, while Nehemiah is away, things have spiraled downhill. The people of God have sinned once again. Our main point today is that we must guard the purity of the church and we must remain faithful to God's word. And We see the people of God compromising their covenant commitment to God and to one another committing all kinds of impurities and all kinds of sin the first thing I want us to see here is that we must not compromise God's word when we look at this text chapter 13 verse 1 it says they had read aloud in the book of Moses that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God and it gives the reason in verse 2 uh, of this reason that They hired Balaam against them to curse him. Now, this goes back to Numbers chapters 22 and 24. The people of Moab were afraid of Israel, and Balak, the king of Israel, hired Balaam to pronounce a curse. Uh, uh, Balak, the king of Moab, hired Balaam to pronounce a curse against Israel. Uh, The story goes that God comes to Balaam and he commands him to only speak what God has commanded him to speak. And God would only allow Balaam to bless Israel, not to curse them. And the Moabites and Ammonites hated Israel because of this. And so these people were to be excluded from the assembly. They were not to be included with the people of God. Now, we get to verse 4. It says, prior to this... Prior to this, this happened before, this reading in verse 13, 1 through 3. Prior to this, Eliashib, the priest. And we saw him back uh, near the beginning where he was building the the walls where the offerings would go through, the sheep gates. Eliashib was one of the ones building the sheep gate with the other priests. He was one who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God. We get a note here that he's related to Tobiah. Now, anybody, if you remember who Tobiah was, Tobiah was one of the enemies of God's people with Sanballat. Sanballat and Tobiah were, were the ones that, man, opposed Nehemiah. They mocked Nehemiah. They planned to kill Nehemiah. They, they, all kinds of things. They were opposed to God and, and his people. Now, what do we know about Tobiah here? If we go back to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10, we learned a little bit, we can get a little bit more information about Tobiah if you've forgotten. Nehemiah 2 10, we see Tobiah again. It says, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. So Tobiah is an Ammonite. And if we notice, the, the Ammonites were to, be, were to never enter the assembly of God's people. So here, Tobiah is an Ammonite, not supposed to enter the assembly of God's people. Tobiah is one of the enemies of God's people, and his relative, Eliashib Eliashib the priest, rents him out an apartment in Jerusalem, and not just anywhere in Jerusalem, but in the temple, and not just anywhere in the temple, but the place where the holy things of God were kept. So we have this one who was not supposed to enter the assembly of the people of God. This one who is an enemy of God's people. Who is now living in quarters where the holy things of God were kept for worship. This was not good. This was compromised to God's clear word. It says that the book of Moses said that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. And now here Tobiah is, not just entering the assembly, but he's got a studio apartment in the temple where the holy things of God were kept. Now, Nehemiah is not aware of this at this point, so I'm not sure the purpose of Nehemiah's request to the king to go visit Jerusalem again. He had really just gotten back. I can't imagine the king be like, Nehemiah, I just gave you a year off, buddy. You want some more time off? But the king lets him go, And he comes to Jerusalem. He learns about this. And he prepares him a room in the courts of the house of God there in verse 7. And it says, it was very displeasing to me. Now notice Nehemiah's response. And we can see a couple of things in here that Nehemiah was, was not happy, right? Here he takes all of Tobiah's household goods and he throws it out of the room. Man, picture that in your mind. He takes his clothes and his, you know, whatever he had, tosses it out, just cleans cleans out the place. And he orders it to be cleansed and he returns the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. And much like Jesus, when he came into the temple, as Jesus finds the money changers in there, he flips over the tables. He comes into Jerusalem and learns about this evil. He throws out Tobiah's belongings out of the room. The people of God, especially Eliashib the priest, had compromised the word of God. As soon as Nehemiah left, compromise set in. We see this over and over again with Israel. God would deliver them and they would drift back into disobedience almost immediately. Hebrews 2, 1 through 3 says this For this reason, we must pay much closer to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if through the word spoken, through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? In church, our tendency is the same as these people in Nehemiah's day. Our tendency is to drift away from God. Our tendency is to drift away from the word of God. And Hebrews tells us the way that we prevent that drift is to pay attention to what we've heard. Well, what have we heard? We've heard the gospel. To pay attention to the gospel. If we, How can we keep from drifting if we neglect so great a salvation? We have to continue to study and hear and know the gospel. The gospel isn't just for unbelievers. The gospel is for us. When we hear the gospel over and over again, when we study the depths of what Christ has done for sinners, it keeps us from drifting in to ungodliness. In the church, we must remain faithful and not compromise the word of God. We saw compromise in Galatians when... Those in in Galatia were trying to appease the Judaizers and pursue circumcision as well. We can't compromise the word. May we be people like Nehemiah who guard the purity of the church and the purity of the gospel. Now it seems like Nehemiah was having a bad day in his response. But this was sacred space. This was an appropriate response of righteous anger. We must act swiftly and seriously when drift and compromise begin to occur within the people of God. If this isn't enough, it continues. So number two, we must prioritize worship and preaching through our giving. This wasn't the only thing that he saw. And he continues, It says in verse 10, I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them so that the Levites and singers who performed the service had gone away each to his own field. Now, if you remember, back in chapter 12, verse 44 from last week, It says on that day men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them from the fields of the cities of the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. The previous chapter, at the end of chapter 12, they are rejoicing. Over the priests and Levites because they're the ones who taught the word to them. And they gave and they contributed to their well-being and they gave to them. Yet here in verse 13, and chapter 13, they've stopped doing that. Now I don't know how long of a period this was. But the very thing they were committed to doing in chapter 12, they're no longer doing in verse 13. And remember... In, in, in chapter 10, in Nehemiah chapter 10, at the end of their, the covenant they made, it says, verse 39, For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine and the oil to the chambers, the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. Yet, they stopped contributing. The priests and Levites had gone back to their own fields, of course, because why? They needed to provide for their families. So they're going back to their own fields so they can take care of their crops and so they can make sure their their families are taken care of. Well, now that the priests and Levites are gone, what's not happening in the temple? There's no worship. God is not being worshipped. And so he reprimands the officials and says, Why is the house of God forsaken at the end of chapter 10 they said we will not neglect the house of our God and three chapters later they're doing just that the house of God is forsaken what we see here they're failing to compensate the Levites demonstrate they don't really care about worship But Nehemiah is committed to the purity of the church. He gathered them together and restored them to their posts. And he calls Judah to give again. All all Judah then brought the tithes of grain and the wine into the storehouse. So thankfully they're obeying once again. And he appoints people in charge of this. Reliable people it says in verse 13. Shelemiah, Zadok. And Petaniah, so a priest, a scribe, and someone of the Levites. And then Hanan and Mataniah, these these five men were put in this charge to distribute the tithes to the Levites, the priests. We're going to come to verse 14 here in a moment. But dear church, we must prioritize the worship of God and the preaching of the word of God through our giving. It is often said that God can accomplish his mission without us. And that's certainly true that he doesn't need you and he doesn't need me. But God has chosen to work through means and he's chosen to work through imperfect men proclaiming his perfect word. And he's chosen to work through you to accomplish his mission. What we give our money to shows what we treasure. And here, they're no longer treasuring the word but we must prioritize worship and preaching through the way that we give well if that's not bad enough continues and number three we must set apart the lord's day as holy now if you remember in nehemiah chapter 10 and this covenant that they made they made a covenant That they would observe the Sabbath. They had made a covenant. It says in verse 31 As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath. We're a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. In Nehemiah chapter 10, they made a covenant. Hey, we're not going to buy anything from people selling on the Sabbath. We are going to keep the Sabbath day holy. Well, what does Nehemiah find? In those days, I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Do you see this? God, we're we're going to keep the Sabbath day holy. God, we're not going to buy things on the Sabbath because this is your day set apart for worship. And then three chapters later, Nehemiah finds the exact opposite of their commitment. And he reprimands the nobles in verse 17. What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? And then he says this. Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us in all this city this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath of Israel by profaning the Sabbath. This is a big deal. Nehemiah attributes the suffering of God's people in captivity captivity to the breaking of the Sabbath. And we find evidence of this in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 21 through 24. It says this, But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to observe my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. They profaned my Sabbaths, so I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness." But I withdrew my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Also I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them among the lands, because they had not observed my ordinances, but had rejected my statutes and had profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were on the idols of their fathers." The reason for their captivity in the first place was Sabbath breaking and idolatry. When we break the Sabbath, when we we don't keep the day holy, as, as he's saying to the Israelites, it leads to idolatry. If we don't set apart God as holy, we'll begin to worship lesser things. Judah should have known this. Judah, the people of God, should have known this was why they were taken into captivity in the first place. But here in Nehemiah, even after they made a covenant commitment to keep the Sabbath day holy, they drift into sin. In response, Nehemiah commands that the gates be shut the night before the Sabbath and not to be opened until after the Sabbath. To keep the merchants out and, and to keep Jerusalem as a place of worship on the Sabbath day. Now notice it says that they were men who would camp right outside the door. They would camp right outside the door so that they could sell their merchandise. And I find it funny. He says, if you do so again, I will use force against you. Now, I'm not exactly sure what kind of force Nehemiah was prepared to use. But he got his point across and they didn't come back. And Nehemiah is serious about this. He even commands the Levites to be purified and to function as gatekeepers on the Sabbath. Now, church, I've said before, we don't worship on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is on Saturday. The Sabbath rest is fulfilled in Christ, and we rest rest in Him from our works. But the principle of setting apart a, a day for worship is still upheld in Scripture. And in the New Testament, that day is the first day of the week, the day that we celebrate the resurrection. And Sunday is the Lord's Day. It is the day that we set apart weekly to honor God. And we must ask ourselves on the Lord's Day, within any decision is made on this Lord's Day, does this honor the Lord? Are we seeking to honor the Lord in the decisions that we make on the Lord's Day? It was clear that they weren't concerned about God or His holiness. They were conducting business as usual, but the Sabbath was a reminder to them to slow down, To recognize who God is and to worship him as he deserves and as he has prescribed. In church, those truths still apply to us today. How do you approach worship on Sunday? Do we (laughs) approach it as a possible option of competing choices, of things that we could do on Sunday? Well, I could go to the church and go to the lake and go to this and go to that. We say, no, this is the Lord's day set apart for worship. All the other things, all the other commitments that I have can wait till Monday morning. This day belongs to the Lord. We must make a commitment to keep the Lord's day holy. Number four, we must commit to personal holiness. Now remember that no Ammonite or Moabite was supposed to enter the assembly of the people. Now, the reason for this was not because of racial superiority or anything like that, but when false, when other nations would enter into the people of God, the the people of God would start worshiping their idols. So, Nehemiah continues to see the, the downward spiral of sin. Now, go back with me again to chapter 10, to this covenant commitment that they made. In Nehemiah chapter 10, in verse 30, they made this commitment. We're going to obey the Lord. We're going to keep His ordinances, in verse 29. In verse 30, specific ways of how they're going to do that. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. What does Nehemiah find? In verse 23, I saw... Also, on that day, Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. They had married people from the, from the people that were not even supposed to enter the assembly. And their children are becoming like them. Now, when I read this and began studying this, the very next verse in Nehemiah's response was very intriguing to me. So I contended with them and cursed them. And struck some of them, and pulled out their hair. And made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Holy moly. What is Nehemiah doing? Nehemiah, did you forget to have your coffee this morning? Nehemiah, like, just take a few minutes. What is going on? Is Nehemiah having a bad day? Is he just, does he just need to take a few moments, take a couple of deep breaths? And what's going on here? Well, Nehemiah is righteously angry because the people of God are disobeying his clear word and are, are going back against the things that they committed to just a few moments ago, a few chapters ago. How can you drift away into this sin? How can you allow yourselves to be unequally yoked with these people? And the problem with this, and it was not because Israel was somehow superior to the other nations, but these other nations would cause them to follow into idolatry, to begin worshiping the false gods of the people. And as soon as they started worshiping the false gods of the people, they would then start living contrary to God's word and living lives of disobedience and sin. We kind of get an idea of that in verse 26. Solomon himself, who is the king of Israel, sinned regarding these things. Even so, he was loved by God. But it says, nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. The foreign women caused even the king of Israel to sin. They began to worship their gods and begin to sin, live disobedient, live in disobedience to the Lord. But it's not just that the people were doing this. The priests began doing it as well. The ones who were responsible for teaching and preaching the word of God also have compromised in their personal holiness. Verse 28, even one of the sons of Joadiah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. This should cause us a little bit of fear and trembling. Even those who were the ones teaching and preaching the word of God were compromising God's clear commands in Scripture and living lives of unholiness. I wish I could say that we don't see that today, but we do. In our age of celebrity pastors, we can see men who fall in great ways. I think even of Scripture, David, a man after God's own heart who sinned with Bathsheba. Now, many of you know who David Platt is. He was um, formerly the pastor of, at Brook Hills Church in Birmingham, Alabama, also was formerly the IMB president and, and uh, uh, popular author and, and and speaker at conferences and things of that nature. You probably don't know who the pastor was at Brook Hills before him. His name was Rick Owsley, and I had heard Rick, and Rick was presently at that time the pastor of Brook Hills. At the time, I had heard Rick. Rick. Uh, preach at a Georgia Baptist evangelism conference when I was in college. I was like, man, this guy is good. I liked hearing him speak, and, and uh, I had heard that he was going to be preaching uh, a revival at a friend of mine's church uh, about an hour from our college campus, and I'm like, man, I am going to go to that. I'm going to go hear Pastor Rick preach the word. And then I find out the day of that the revival was supposed to happen, that it got canceled. It seemed a bit bizarre. Did he have a health crisis? Did he have a what's going on? So I got online to look him up and look at what was going on, and man, my mouth dropped. Rick had had an ongoing affair with a woman for the entire duration of his marriage to his wife. I was blown away this one who I had heard preach the word this one who I was going to go see at this revival didn't just have a one night stand or one indiscretionary moment but had lived in immorality and deception for 20 years all the while being married to his wife. I wish I could say that this is a one-off story, but it's not. Here we see the priests in Scripture, they're defiled. And what a warning to pastors to pursue holiness. Sometimes we could become puffed up like the Pharisees and say, I'm glad that's not me. But church, the gospel reminds me that there is nothing good in me and I am who I am by the sheer grace of God. And it will only be His grace that sustains me and enables me to pursue holiness. In our own church covenant, we commit to walk in obedience and holiness. And the church is to be the redeemed people of God who strive to walk in holiness. In 1 Peter, we're called to be holy because God Himself is holy. And we're called to reflect that image. In Hebrews twelve 14, we're told to strive for peace with all men and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In Ephesians 1, 4, it tells us that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Why? So that we would live a holy life, blameless, before Him. Dear church, the mark of a true believer is a life of holiness. Committed to living a life set apart from the world. The people in Nehemiah's time drifted into worldliness, being influenced by pagan nations. And many Christians today and churches today look nothing different than the world. Dear church, may we commit to living a life set apart, a life of holiness for God's glory. Number five, we will be rewarded by the Lord when we pursue the work of purity in the body of Christ. Church, as it is in Nehemiah's day, it's easy to drift towards ungodliness and compromise. Nehemiah knew where his strength comes from. He knew that it was God's providence that called him to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall in the first place. He knew it was God who was answering his prayer. It was not, it's not surprising then what we find in verses 14 and in verses ter- thir- 22 and in verses 31. In verses 14... He says, remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. Verse 22, for this, also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Verse 31, remember me, O my God, for good. The work at purifying the body of Christ when members are sinning and drifting towards ungodliness is not an easy task. When we look at Nehemiah's response, even the crazy thing of pulling out people's hair, maybe I wouldn't have done that. I don't know how I would have responded. This is hard work. But this is important work that we would purify the people of God. Sometimes this work of purification, it's not met with applause, it's not met with recognition. Sometimes you're looked at as the bad guy. But God is a God who sees and remembers us. Dear believer, your unflinching commitment to personal holiness and the corporate holiness of the church and your pursuit of such things will not go unnoticed. You may not be applauded by men. You may even be hated by some. But God sees you. And God remembers you. And he will remember your faithfulness and your reward will be great. Lastly, We'll be through is that we must acknowledge our need for Jesus. Now, where am I getting this from the text? Well, I'm not, sort of. In the book of Nehemiah, here at 13, this book is describing things that happened in around 445 to 430 BC. It is the last. Historical record of scripture that we get before we get to the New Testament. Again, I said I wish that Nehemiah ended on a high note in chapter 12. But it ends with this depressing note in Nehemiah 13 of the people of God drifting back into sin. And then we get 400 years of silence from God. No revelation. Where is God? The people of God had drifted back into sin. Where's God at? 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament of no revelation. Where's God? And then a baby's born. His name was John. Six months later, his cousin would be born. His cousin was Jesus. And on that Christmas night, a normal night in Bethlehem, in a nasty, smelly manger filled with hay and animal droppings, Joseph and the virgin Mary, to whom he was betrothed, gave birth to a baby, but not just an ordinary baby. This baby was God in the flesh. This baby who slipped into history on a seemingly ordinary and silent night without fanfare and recognition was the promised Messiah. He was the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He was the seed of Abraham by through whom all nations of the earth would be blessed. He was the one who would hold the scepter from the tribe of Judah. He is the one who would sit on the throne of David forever and ever and rule and reign as our eternal king. This is Jesus. We come to Nehemiah 13. This depressing end. Although the book of Nehemiah ends here, the story does not end here. Jesus came. And not only was he born and have a cute little story of a manger scene of sheep and shepherds coming, Jesus came. He was born to die. He was born to live a sinless life and he was born to die a substitutionary death and after he died he took his first breath that third day and rose triumphantly from the grave defeating sin, death, and the grave and praise God that one day he is coming back to fully and finally put an end to Satan's sin and death and reign as king. When we see this depressing ending of Nehemiah 13, dear church, it is a reminder to us that we desperately need Jesus. Apart from Christ, we too drift into sin and ungodliness. We need Jesus. And praise God that he has come, that he who was born has died and rose again, and we long with expectation for his triumphant return. Let's pray.